Hi there, and welcome to the Creative Endeavor podcast. This is the podcast bringing you inspiring stories from creative professionals from around the world. And in this episode, I'm talking to Daniel Bilmez, who's a figurative portrait artist based in Los Angeles. Now, Daniel's work is extraordinary. He's got a completely unique way of applying paint. Now, how many people can we say that about, really, in today's day and age? Everything's been done. There's nothing new under the sun, or so they say. But I can tell you right now, I've never seen anything quite like the portraits painted by Daniel Bilmez. It's almost as if these paintings were woven. I had to hear all about it. I needed to hear all about it and really geek out on the technical side of things as to how he applies oil paint. What are those combinations he's using? What are the grounds he's using? How is he even making those marks in the first place? He was really great. I mean, he shared so much with me here in this conversation, but not just about the technical side of his particular process, but also we dove deep into his background, his past, what inspires him, what drives him. I got so much out of this conversation, more than just the technique of how he creates his pictures. This was really a great conversation about our thought process, our motivation, what really drives us creatives. And I was able to reflect upon so much in Daniel's story. And really, it got me thinking about my own story in, in a lot of different ways. This was great, totally engaging. As I was going back and reviewing the podcast before it gets released, you know, I, I go back and I re-listen to these things, polish a little bit. I'm not censoring, but you know what I mean, fixing audio glitches and the like. This really had me inspired. I was thinking, man, this guy is interesting. So I know you're going to love this episode. I really hope you do. Now, before you jump into it, because listen, we, we know you're going to love it, right? You're going to, of course, you're going to love it. Do me a favor. Leave me a rating or a review on whatever audio platform you're listening on. Go ahead and take a moment and do that now. Help me spread the word of this podcast. Help me reach more people. I can't do it without you. And I really appreciate the extra effort. Okay, enough. That said. Let's jump straight into this episode of The Creative Endeavor. Here's Daniel Bilmez. Well, Daniel Bilmez, welcome to the Creative Endeavor podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Andrew. It's good to be here. This is actually my first podcast. So, Oh, awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Wow. We got there first. We're first to interview Daniel. Awesome. Yep. Well, look, I, I've, I'm familiar with your work. I've been following you for a little while um, online, of course. And, you know, I must admit your technique is one that I, I've not come across that application of paint before you seem to have a unique approach to the figure and the portrait which is just really refreshing i really enjoy your work and um you know it's it's great to just have an opportunity to to connect with you because i do want to talk all about your paintings but as i was doing a little bit of digging into your your background and your past um i i you know realized from from reading your 
a biography that you actually were brought up with art uh, in the home, and, and this was a big part of your, your early influences. Take us right back to the start, Daniel, of when you first got the inkling that you wanted to do this a, a, as a professional. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for the uh, kind words regarding my work. And um, yeah, to go all the way back, uh, my father and mother actually are both artists, and um, when I was a little kid, my dad actually had an illustration school in Southern Oregon, and so I was basically like, you know, drawing as a child, and then when I was about eight years old, I asked my dad if I could, you know, go to his school, because it was, you know, exciting, and there was this like you know, feeling of like, oh, wow, that's where the adults are studying. And it was sort of like, it wasn't just drawing, like, I was actually kind of enamored with the idea of going into like an actual, you know, school environment, because uh, we were also homeschooled. So at the time, I'd never really set foot in a school. And so like the entire idea of like going somewhere for education was like, super interesting. And it was my dad's school. And so I started studying with him when I was about eight. And then my mom, she actually um, used to be a fashion designer. Um, and so she, you know, was an artist back in Russia. And then when she immigrated, she, was, she finished high school in New York. And then she went to Parsons um, for fashion design. And that's actually where my, pa my parents met when my dad was basically finishing his degree in Parsons in fine art. And she was finishing her degree in fashion. And so kind of growing up, it was like a lot of art-related themes and things like that. And then a lot of encouragement, obviously, to draw and paint. And I was always just interested in it. And then I think right around when I was eight and I started going to his illustration school is when I started to really sort of get more and more serious at it. And kind of, I don't know, probably when I started getting competitive, because I am definitely competitive and like... For me, it was almost like at an early age to like compete with the adults. And then it was basically like, you know, I started teaching when I was like 15. So then it was basically kind of like just kind of get competitive with myself and just kind of see how far I could push it, how close to repping I can get, things like that, you know, childhood ambitions and whatnot. So you, you were teaching art at the age of 15. Yep. <laughs> Man, that was phenomenal. That is that is absolutely amazing. It was interesting because it was like it was a smaller town. So Ashland, Oregon is where I grew up, is where my dad had the art school and whatnot. And, um, you know, I was kind of curious, too, as like, a, you know, a little punk going up there. Like I knew my shit, but, you know, coming in as an adult into a classroom and then having like, you know, 15 year old tell you what to do. I was actually curious at how the students would take it. And surprisingly, the students were super into it as soon as they kind of realized that there was, you know, good data coming to them they were super respectful and actually like listened and, and, and did everything and zero complaints. Wow. So when you, when you cast your mind back to those early classes, you know, as a, as a 15 year old teaching, mm -hmm. how do you feel you compare now to that? I mean, obviously there's awesome been question. Uh, there... I have thought about that. Totally. Yeah. Go on. Um, I'm a lot nicer now. Okay. <laughs> so basically, like, I gave great data, but it was like, you can correct it here, 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 and here. This is an issue. And so it was basically like a quick and dry analysis mm -hmm. um, that wasn't necessarily off. But I've realized over the years that, um, you know, short form data of where everything is off and how they can improve things isn't the only aspect of teaching. You know, there's inspiring, there's motivating, there's engaging, there's, you know, tailoring and adapting what you're explaining to the actual specific student. 
like I've learned to do that a lot more and like actually understand what the student needs and trying to sort of convey things in a way that they can actually accept and understand. Whereas back then it was a little bit more sort of one, one way fits all type of instruction, which it wasn't wrong. It was just more sort of like, you know, short form and direct. Yeah, so there wasn't that softness or subtlety to your instruction. Not quite as yeah. much. Yeah. I mean, again, my, my parents both Russian Jewish, and you know, I was raised homeschooled with a pretty sort of academic mm. spin to it. It wasn't a lot of like you know hippie stuff. It was just like study through the summers, study through the winters, you know. And um, yeah, I didn't. I wasn't aware of of, of how softly people are used to receiving things and how important it is actually for most people yeah. you know because like i got used to like i don't mind in the sort of training environment if you know your your coach is yelling at you or something like that i'm like whatever it takes you know to be that sort of peak performer but for a lot of people it's not how it works and for a lot of people it's actually very important to be able to hear things in a format in which they can actually accept and understand them otherwise it's not even helpful and so you know, you could be like clobbering someone with the answers that they actually need and they won't be able to hear them. We're, we're all individuals, aren't we? We all have a different approach or a different uh, mechanism by which we, we do obtain this information. It's almost like a key in the lock. You know, they're the lock and you're the key and you have to have the right shape in order to open them up, you know. And I found that with, with teaching. One, one thing I'm curious about, though, Daniel, is... As you were teaching, did you find that your own artwork personally, you know, developed and changed through having to, because I found this for myself, right? When I went into teaching, suddenly I found I was gaining a new level of understanding. The person learning the most in that class was me. Um, absolutely. I think most teachers um, go through that, um, or at least decent ones. And that's kind of where, like, especially like starting so early, you start to like realize the gaps in your own understanding because like to be able to explain something fully is different than kind of intuit it and just kind of generally kind of guess or you know figure out how to make it work to be able to articulate you know and explain it from different angles and to answer questions you know you almost have to understand it at a different level mm -hmm. and I think that like doing that from an early age really helped me with my entire journey as well so it's like yeah I think teaching was instrumental in my own development for sure I actually think that it's like um, it's not like a new concept either. Like traditionally, like in, in the past, like you always had sort of like more advanced students help the you know more junior students, and a lot of times like the actual sort of professor, teacher, artist that you know was basically you know just only involved in some of the more advanced things, and like a lot of the grunt work was done by more advanced students. And I think that like that sort of process of understanding kind of from like a very junior position of you know learning the basics to sort of kind of pushing yourself through that and then to actually mentor and help others. I think it's like the, a really important stage in, in, in personal development as well. Mm. Wow. So you, you mentioned going to, uh, to homeschool or, or doing your education formally uh, through homeschool. That's something that I've been very interested in uh, recently. And I, if you don't mind, I wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't mind just going Not off on that little tangent a, a little bit. Cause you know, I went to to uh, primary school and then high school, and I think it, with my parents and work commitments, there was no way that anybody would be able to take care of me. Um, and, and I would have been probably pretty happy taking care of myself, painting, drawing, doing that sort of thing. But 
I, I don't know how to form a question, but I just, I guess I'm just so curious as to what that would have been like. And I'm, I'm getting what, the question. You're like, how did it happen? Did how does it that work? work? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, you're obviously, you know, a fully functioning I, adult. I, it didn't I, do you I, any I harm. I don't read so good. Okay. Okay. Well, neither do I. So and it's I... like, you know, yeah, yeah. No, um, it was, it was interesting. It was different. I didn't realize how sort of unusual and unique it was at the time because, you know, my dad, Basically, my parents were in New York. That's where they met, and and that's where they sort of you know married. And then when they decided to have a family, they actually moved from New York to Southern Oregon. And it was at the time like you know you know Grants Pass, Oregon was like a tiny little survivalist mecca. And they literally, my dad had a real estate agent send him a key to a mobile home. He didn't know what a mobile home was, oh, yeah. and so they like fly into Southern Oregon, drive over there into the woods to see their new mobile home. And the mom just starts crying. Um, and so it took them a while to sort of acclimate. And then they found like another town that was kind of closer to what they were, you know, looking for in that same area. I mean, Oregon's super beautiful, but it was, you know, definitely a big shock, especially in the eighties from New York. And basically, you know, when we, we grew up on like 20 acres surrounded by like BLM land running around building forts and sort of studying at home. So we weren't just homeschooled. We were like in the woods. You know that um, Captain Fantastic movie or whatever? Oh, uh, yeah. 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 So yeah. it's basically kind of like that minus the Marxism because my, my dad sort of left the Soviet Union, so very anti-communist. So it's basically okay. other than that aspect, it really kind of was that type of vibe a little bit more. Yeah. And my mom basically you know stopped working when she, when they had a family and so she was involved with the schooling and then uh, my dad was you know doing a lot of illustration work at the time we were super little and then he kind of worked himself into messing up his shoulder and after he messed up his shoulders when he actually started teaching and so he started an illustration school at the time because that's the space that he was in mm -hmm. and you know, my mom, when we were little, dealt with the academics, and then we had a lot of tutors. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there was once you get past a certain stage, like we definitely had a lot of tutors come in. Um, some came to the house, some like my parents were always doing different trades with, you know, other homeschooling families. Sometimes, you know, like someone else would teach us English. My mom was great at math, for instance. And so there was like exchanges, and then there was also hired tutors, so all kinds of different sort of alternative means to just give us all of the information as sort of quickly and efficiently as possible. Mm. Um, like we didn't take summers off. So it's like we wouldn't do the full math books. We would just skip the first third because it was all review and just do two or three years of curriculum in a year. And, you know, we were little kids. Basically, my dad's kind of like, yeah, you, you know, you can't go to school. They're, they're not teaching you the right things. It's like, you know, super basic stuff, you know, because they came from the Soviet Union. They looked at the public school curriculum in the U.S. They were just kind of like, ha. Nah. Um, wow. And it was just like a lot of like more sort of like academic. And there was also four of us. And yeah. so like especially my brother and myself, we were kind of, you know, competitive, too. And it wasn't like you're just sitting there by yourself. So it was like it was there was a, it was a norm within the family because there was more than one of us kind of going through that process. And I think that and the fact that we were kind of removed up on a mountain made it super just normal, to be honest, at yeah. the time. Yeah. That's incredible, man. I, I, because I, when I have children, I, I can tell you, 
for certain they will not be going to school <laughs> they're not going you to see, school you see what i mean though That's oh kind man of where it's like i think a lot yeah. of you know people are realizing that more and more now just because like you know you grow up and you're like dude i wasted so much time or it was also miserable a lot of people get picked yeah. on like it's like not really i mean you can gain certain things for sure for sure i actually sometimes like i it's funny my wife laughs at me because my brother and i both like you know, movies that have to do with schools, you know, some sort of like coming of age stories or like movies about high school or whatever. Breakfast Club. Not like fully seriously, not Breakfast Club. <laughs> I'm saying like whatever, yeah. you know, I don't remember which ones, but like, because it is kind of fascinating to me, like the yeah. entire premise of like a bunch of kids thrown together in like this weird sort of social environment. And, you know, it also is surprising to me how, how much people struggle with that. Um, and like I might have too, like I wasn't mm-hmm. there. Like, as an adult looking at it, it's almost kind of like, looks fun. It doesn't look like you'll learn anything, but it looks fun. I, I tell you what it did for me. Um, I, it, I, I couldn't work out. And I, I, I might have mentioned this on the podcast. Uh, certainly talked to my buddies about it. But if I had a time machine, I had an opportunity to go back and, and yeah. just put this head in my 14 or, or 15-year-old body, I would have just closed up my exercise book and walk the heck out. You know, the teacher meanwhile going, Andrew, where are you going? Sit back down. I'm like, you have no power over me at all. I'm leaving. Yeah, pretty much. Because the way I see it now is that, and I have so many examples, and I was, I'm sure a lot of people listening, so many examples out there of the way school or the public school system in general, in the West anyway, Australia, New Zealand, the United States, they're teaching you in one particular modality, one format, one way to kind of, you have to repeat back the answers that you were given and critical thought and creative thinking is driven out of the children from a very early age. I remember going up to, to the front of the class in, in what was social studies at the time, they since called it something else. And I, I went back to the teacher, you know, querying him on this bad grade that I got on the test. I said, I gave you the dang answer. What do you want? And he said, Andrew, you did. You gave me the correct answer, but you didn't give it to me in the way that I wanted to hear it. I'm like, yeah. are you freaking kidding me, dude? What, you want me to just repeat back to you exactly what you said? He's like, yes, Andrew. I'm like, what am I doing here? You know? Yeah, no, for sure. And like, from my understanding, too, like the whole premise of multiple choice answers on everything, too, is basically like it's just wow. also like a whole nother skill set of like, you know, process of elimination. Like, I remember when I like um, I we basically did most of like k through 12 by by the time we were like 12 or 13 my brother and i anyway and then um you know he went to college super early when he was like 13 i actually took a few years off to work construction because that's when we were remodeling um the building that turned into the art school in ashland and i was like super into construction at the time because i just thought it was super fun and so i was in there like 12 13 like you know laying tile building floors you know framing and all that kind of stuff and then when the school opened up, I was like, okay, maybe I should go to college too. So I went and and I went took my placement test. I think I was like 14 at the time. And like I, I felt super rusty. And I'm taking the math test. I'm like, oh man, I don't know. Like I'm rusty, right? And then I think I aced it completely. And so like as high as I could place in math. And I was like, because it was multiple choice. It was like, well, that's obviously wrong. Like that, that looks right. Because I still knew enough. I remembered enough to where I kind of had that gut feeling. Mm-hmm. And I was like, dude, this is how you take tests. Cause like we never did multiple choice at home. Like the whole concept was such a, like a weird sort of like, here's three options. One of them's right. So you already have a 33% chance totally blindly of, of getting, you know, a third of the questions. Right. And then, or you said you have, a, you know, hundred, almost hundred percent chance of getting a third of them. Right. And then if you have like any sort of idea or remember 
like kind of general rules, you can pretty much pass it without knowing the answer to half the questions. Mm. It's weird. Oh man, totally, totally. But there, right there, and is is a thing right there. I mean, multiple choice. It, where's the thinking in that? Where's the thinking? Where's the where's the exploration? Where's the diving into a concept and exploring totally. it? Totally, man. And so to continue that, I mm. went and then I took like I, the calculus was great. The funny thing is the most exploration I've ever had and the most sort of encouragement from teachers to be creative and to actually challenge and sort of debate. I granted my limited experience was from the math teachers and because math has always been my favorite. And like mm. I always had, I had like a really good math tutor um, growing up. And, you know, she was kind of like her only <laughs> On a report card to my parents, the only issue was he's overly competitive. Because um, I was basically <laughs> like, I went into this kind of like, there was a kind of this like a homeschooling center type thing where we were at, where there's like a lot of tutors and things like that. And I came in there and I was like, I want to do algebra of two and I'll do trig at this in the same year. She's like, why? I'm like, why not? And so, you know, I was getting too competitive and I was like asking her what the other students were doing if I was the best because I needed to make sure that I was like, you know, had the best grades and whatnot. And she was just laughing at me. But, um, yeah, the, my math teachers always was, were very encouraging with that. And then I remember I took a history class in Southern Oregon University, and I disagreed with the woman's take on history. Like, she's giving me an example. I'm a big history buff. My dad is as well. I grew up reading, like, you know, books this big, Greek history, Roman history. That was, like, literally my, my, my pastime. I just read. And, and so... You know, I'm basically like disagreeing with her on her take and I'm like kind of trying to like engage and be like, but and like there was no like it wasn't like, oh, I got this little kid in the front row kind of trying to like question my take on history. It was more of like this pissy, politically correct kind of like, oh, no, this is how it is kind of situation. And I was like, this is retarded, like and especially because of history, like history is literally like the teacher's not that necessary. Mm. The teacher's literally reading books and telling you their take on history. You know, you could read the same books and, and, and come up with your own take. Like I used to love reading um, like the same accounts of the same battles by, let's say, like French and English authors because they were always at war with each other. And like the same battle has like a completely different explanation by two different sides. And so what I realized is if you really want to kind of generally get a glimpse of history, you basically have to read multiple takes from multiple authors in multiple countries, preferably, about similar accounts, and then you can kind of sort of get an idea of what happened. Because, like, you know, the victors write history. And so, like, if you take one one take on it, then, you know, like, back in the 80s, even, like, American history, you read it, and you're like, whoa. And, like, a lot of the books are still not that updated, and it's kind of like, that's not real history, necessarily. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, very true. So the teacher didn't take too kindly to that. Not too kindly, no. So you're you're reading these big fat history books, and yet you're telling me that you don't read so well. So what? It was it was a joke. Okay, okay. Yeah. You, you you do read well. <laughs> I, I well passively well, yeah. Excellent, because uh, I, I I've practiced enough. Yeah. I refuse to read. That's the thing Probably. now. I, I don't I don't read at all. And I should. I really should. It, it kind of hurt me. And I, it's not that I want to blame my dad and throw him under the bus. But uh, my, my dad and my stepmother, when I was very young, I had set reading time every day. And I was reading mm-hmm. dumb, dumb books and stuff. And, and it wasn't I, I sometimes I got to choose and I, I choose these twist to plot novels and various things. But I more most of the time, I'd sit there and fake it. I would just fake it out to protest. But what I found was really interesting. I, I grew up with these 
um, like Reader's Digest, National Geographic type picture books, mm -hmm. like huge fat books on a particular subject, like New Zealand and the Pacific Islands, Australia, the, you know, um, the Himalayas or whatever. And mm -hmm. so I'd open up these books, I'd look at a picture, and the only bit that I could be bothered reading was a caption that went to the picture. So now my recall with images is really, because I was training that rewiring in my brain. That so is, now, that's super cool. Now I remember like dates, names, places, but it's always associated with something visual. But I, I and don't. And it's funny. I'm like the opposite. I don't right. remember names, dates, or places, but I remember yeah. concepts, systems, the way things function. I've always been process based, so it's like for me, it's like an understanding of how things work almost. Wow. And so, like, I would le read the data to find patterns, and then try to apply those patterns to sort of my understanding. Wow. And so, like, a lot of my reading consisted of sort of like almost building baselines of data, so that you can understand when things are anomalies, when things are sort of within the norm how general things work, you know, like human nature, you know, history does repeat itself. And like, for me, a lot of it was was studying, it was like, my dad is, is well read. His, his mom was a director of a library back in the Soviet Union. Um, and that was kind of his escape in the Soviet Union. So he basically would like, find, you know, take these books and like escape in them. And he always dreamed of getting out of the Soviet Union. And so when he finally did, and eventually had a family, his sort of, you know, contribution other than art with the whole educational thing, because um, we were homeschooled, was just these lists of classics. Like, I, I remember, like, struggling through Les Mis when I was, like, you know, 10 or 11. And it's, it's a, you know, a few it's a thousand plus pages. And I still remember that book more vividly than a lot of books I've read within the last year. Um, and that's kind of like, there's something about that young age, like if you can actually get to the point where you can read at an advanced level, I almost think it's more valuable to read some of the books where you don't even understand the whole thing, but you're getting exposure to such nuance and such like a brilliant understanding of humanity and subtlety that, you know, it impacts you pretty, pretty dramatically. And so like my favorite author still is Mapasan. Um, and I remember reading Mapasan when I was, you know, super young and he's like a, you know, 19th century naturalist writer he actually died eating his own shit in a mental institution but um <laughs> the guys of you know so brilliant such an understanding of life that sometimes it's almost like overwhelming but like you know at such a young age you're getting exposed to these you know brilliant minds and like my, actually it was it was really impactful but like to me it almost like made it difficult like when i started interacting with the rest of the world i i remember it was like you know sitting there in my time i would read like nine hours a day and then, you know, homeschooled. So I didn't have a lot of sort of friends and we didn't do the whole social thing. And then as like a young, you know, adult, a young teen kind of getting out into the world, even when I was teaching and started like hanging out with, you know, more of the, you know, always older people, but, you know, still people in today's society. And I had like a big disconnect. I was like, this is not how people should act. Like there's no subtlety. There's no nuance. There's no you know, nobility or, you know, these aspirations of these sort of lofty goals that I was brought up with. And it wasn't even my parents teaching me that it was the books. And so it was like, like my parents are very sort of noble and everything. But I'm more saying that, like, you know, they immigrated from the Soviet Union, they have enough sort of real world experience to where that, it, you know, it's not that it was actually like my expectation of reality was based more off of the books that I was reading than my own sort of observation up to probably when I was about 13. And then I remember when I was like 13 was like almost that loss of innocence, that sort of puberty combined with just my personal observation being like, wow, people are just not doing so well.
Like they're not trying very hard to not be, you know, or they're not trying very hard to be the best that they can be. And that was like a really interesting thing to me. Like everybody was like talking about killing time. And like, I didn't know what hanging out meant until I was like 13. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Wow. 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 Yeah. Killing time, hanging out. Yeah. Chilling out. You know, yeah. I, this is, that is so interesting. I, I came head to head with that in Australia because there's something mm -hmm. within Australian culture that drives ambition and goals and these lofty aspirations. And especially if you're a kid and you're saying, oh, mm -hmm. I'm going to be this, or I'm going to be a that. There's something about culture there. And again, this is not to put down my, my Australian brothers and sisters out there, uh, but there there is something within culture, you know, at large that they call it the tall poppy syndrome. So the tall poppy grows up. It's the first one to get cut down, you mm -hmm. know, bring it back down to the level of everything else. And um, I, I, I found that. And, and you're so right that this is it's So what, what do you well, think is behind the, that? The, why, why do so you think that is? So the interesting thing is there's, there's I actually have multiple thoughts on that. Um, if, even if you think about like necessity for society, like, you know, before you had craftsmen making things, you know, one-offs and everybody, you know, artists and things like that. And and then like, you know, industrial revolution comes and you actually need factory workers. And so there's like a big incentive there to make people a little bit more kind of simple, more sort of worker type because it was then necessary. And I'm not even saying it's like some sort of, you know, des by design type of thing, but it, the necessity, the sort of the need for the worker became more prevalent. Mm -hmm. um, and then also... I'm actually like not even saying I have an issue with people like following their bliss. I was just more saying that that was me then because I was so into reading these sort of like, you know, lofty goals, lofty aspirations. Like I think that if, you know, you're happy as following the waves and surfing, good on you. And if you can actually pull that off and live your life doing what you love doing, great. Like mm -hmm. I'm not actually saying that everybody needs to like try to climb over each other to be the best at what they're doing. Um, but you know, that definite, you know, general sort of social push to do the best that you can. I think that is coming back a little bit and it has existed in society. But what that meant has changed mm -hmm. because like, you know, in the 50s, it was there was a different idea of what doing your best meant versus, let's say, right now. And every generation, there's a little bit of a shift there. Mm -hmm. And I definitely do think that, you know, in my understanding, especially like, you know, like I'm in L.A. right now and everybody's trying to do something. And a lot of people are trying to do something. That they don't even know what it is, but they just want some sort of accomplishment because they know that it's important to have some sort of accomplishment and to push yourself and to grow. It's just a lot of times people don't even know what that means or how to how to go about it. And everybody wants the rewards without the effort. And so that's kind of where a lot of times I think if you're not raised in a way to where you know that like, oh, you want a lot, that means you start working early and you work a lot and you learn and you study and you push yourself because that's how you're able to accomplish a lot. Whereas, you know, people are raised in a way to where they're like never told that they need to, you know, work their ass off. And then eventually they're told that they should want a lot. And so now you have like a lack of ability combined with the you know craving for much and it leaves people feeling super empty and feeling like they're failures, but they're not because, you know, they didn't set out to do anything. They didn't fail. They didn't even know that they wanted something that was difficult. So they didn't put the time in to sort of get a head start. And then eventually they're basically struggling with this sort of feeling of helplessness because, you know, they're looking and they're like their goals are so far away. They feel like it's too late to start. My advice is it's never too late to start. 
like you can do like there's people that started in their you know middle years people that started at you know changed careers you know had life-changing experiences all kinds of different things and so like you know if you have a head start and if you can start you know working towards you know large lofty goals early on that's great if you had fun as a kid great you know start later if you you know love what you're doing and you're not into lofty goals even better you know enjoy your life and that's kind of where i'm at whereas like i almost think that people owe themselves an attempt at happiness almost you know an attempt at, at doing something or building a sustainable model of life that will allow them to progress and to feel accomplished and to feel like they're growing as a human mm-hmm. and that's the responsibility not for society and you know you do help society in that type of position if you're if you're someone that's trying to grow i think you're automatically helping society because if everybody tried to be the best version of themselves and and to grow and to flourish and to basically work on themselves the world would be a, you know a much better place oh, and okay. so my whole thing is like about personal responsibility and about sort of self-knowledge you know take the time to actually get to know yourself understand what you actually want and then try to build a pathway or a way to actually move in that direction and it's kind of that simple Hmm. Super complicated, super difficult to accomplish, but it's not the most complicated concept. And like I talk to people, like even as a teacher, people say, "What should I do?" And like I'm like after that, I'm like, "What do you want?" You know, it's like depending on what you want, you do completely different things. And that's the whole like, and that's where it gets back into that whole like one size fits all answer or curriculum. It gets dangerous because you're training people to be drones, not to be individuals. And then you're surprised when people don't want to do anything. I think that's by design, Daniel, in all honesty. Not arguing, necessarily. I, I, I think that's by design, that, that, that people are trained to be drones and that it's, it is a breaking of the programming that is so difficult for people to do to then, you know, and, and I think what you're describing there, I agree with you. What you're describing there, though, has given birth to this new age self-help industry where you sit back and you wish for True. something and it's just supposed to happen because, you know, I'm following my bliss and I'm meditating seven hours a day and I wrote down on the bill that came in one million dollars and I'm going to pretend this is a check and it's going to come in. And whilst you're saying, I'm in L.A., man, I know exactly. What you know what I'm talking about, man. Yeah. And listen, I have personally spent like an idiot tens of thousands yes tens of thousands of dollars on cds dvds books and seminars and personal really? one-on-one coaching with people to just try to figure out something that i could have found for myself and it cost me a lot of money to end up at a, at a place where i was like you know what this isn't the answer the answer is exactly what you were just saying it's a simple concept it's but it's 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 hard to do and it's literally, what do you want? And get to here's, work. Here's what we do. We just need to start packaging it and selling it to people for a million of dollars. <laughs> All right, you and me, we're going to team up here. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay yeah. awesome. We're going to become the new, the new self-help coaches. No, um, honestly, <laughs> I have. I, the funny thing is, is I'm in LA and I actually have a lot of friends that are life coaches and whatnot. Life and, coach, life coach, oh man. <laughs> yeah, life coach. And what I'm actually right. saying is it's weird because I have almost like, um, like I think a lot of people need help. Yes. 
And that's kind of this thing. And Dora's like, you can't actually, you know, commit your life to something without getting some sort of compensation. So like, I don't actually, like I used to kind of have a issue with the whole premise of life coach. Mm -hmm. Now I just think that most, it's like, just like any industry, most people that are, you know, a lot of people that are in it, especially without regulations, you're basically sharing whatever you want to share. And so like a lot of people literally are giving the wrong data. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, like, like, as I'm saying, like the, prescription changes based on what the desired outcome is. And so when somebody says, I have the answer for you without talking to you, without hearing what you want, where you're coming from, that's usually a red flag, you know, like it's not a one size fits all. It's not like here's, it's like, you know, people want to learn how to draw and paint and they're like scrolling through Instagram. There's an ad saying one day, all the masters secrets, Every single thing you need to become a brilliant painter, just send me some money and I'll give you all the answers. Like that's a great idea for an ad. Right, right. (laughs) But but basically, like if it was only that easy, and and people have this idea that there's a secret answer, that there is some sort of magical information that is going to bypass all the rules that everybody needs to abide by. Mm -hmm. And you know, there is good data. I actually agree with that. There's totally good advice, but it's, you know, it's a, it, it can like help you know where to go, but all of the work still needs to be put in. And like, you know, you're in fine, you know, representational painting. I am anybody that's involved in like trying to figure out and like learn all of these sort of like super difficult skill sets that take years kind of understand that. Like if you learn how to paint, you know, well, you're a, familiar with hard work and repetition and drills and discipline and all those types of things. Otherwise you wouldn't have those skill sets. And I think that like my own sort of understanding of kind of systems and how to, you know, build ways to accomplish, you know, the desired outcome also has been very much impacted by, you know, studying at such an early age and learning how to draw and paint. Like literally I was an eight year old in an adult art school learning how to draw from life. And I think that has impacted my brain a lot because a lot of people just they're, they're not used to stretching their brains and being uncomfortable all the time. And like, dude, if you're learning at the highest level that you can, you're always uncomfortable. Like 100%. you're uncomfortable from morning till you go to sleep and you probably don't even have peaceful sleep because you're still trying to figure some things out and you're waking up screaming because you're trying to figure something out. You know, yeah. it, it, it's not like this sort of peaceful, tranquil thing now. I actually am kind of a big fan of what I call almost like um, practical Buddhism okay. in a certain sense. Like I'm not religious by any stretch of imagination. Okay. I just think that there's a lot of sort of different things you can learn from different places. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being by myself in the studio for like years and overworking and understanding that like, you know, there is something about being centered, about taking the time to breathe in the morning, about actually regulating your own emotions and things like that that will actually help you become even more efficient and, and more productive and happier and be able to live longer. And so, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm like super into one thing. Like I, you know, grew up being all about like discipline, 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 discipline. Oh, you're tired. Shut up. Discipline, discipline. <laughs> right. And then I was basically like, you know, oh, totally overworked. I've had little burnout sessions where I'm kind of like, I can make myself do whatever, but you do that for years. And then you're like, wait a second why is it not fun anymore? And then, so you kind of have to get back to actually enjoying yourself and caring, but you still want to be disciplined. And so like regulating all of those different things 
is where I kind of have started getting into like, okay, I need to build a system that doesn't push me to one extreme or the other. Like wow. I need a system to where I can go in my desired direction consistently and without damaging myself or damaging others or damaging anything. Right. And, and that's kind of where I think that like the super hardcore discipline needs to be balanced with a little bit of like a self kindness and meditation maybe. And like, you know, a little bit of like thoughtfulness. Um, and those are habits too, that kind of get in, involved. Like I practice breathing every morning so that I don't forget to breathe when I'm painting. Oh, wow. Okay. That's also called meditation, but I'm actually sure. saying that like, sure. for me, it's like 15 minutes of literally practicing breathing Okay. so that I'm like, okay, I got this. Okay. And then, so I can continue that breathing into my work because I've totally literally been painting and then been like, <sighs> Cause like I forgot to breathe and it's like a consistent thing with me that if I don't practice breathing, I'll forget to breathe mm. because I'm so focused on what I'm doing. Mm. And I think different people almost like, you know, you, you can reside in your body, you can reside in your mind. And like, you know, like, like if you're doing something physical, you're mm. almost like in this like weird in between state where you're not like overly analytical. There's like a, like sometimes it's like a mantra or well, like for sure. so circling the same thought or whatever it is. You're, you're um, so reminding me of there of the rowing machine that I'm on most yeah. days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you're kind of like, is that, yeah. yeah so like I yeah. tend to accidentally almost get so caught up in my brain that I almost mm -hmm. detach from my body. And that's kind of where like you forget to breathe. And it's also not healthy for you because then, you know, you're, we're not only minds and thinking things. Like we have that's bodies. Right. You right. kind of neglect your body. It'll, it'll remind you in mm -hmm. unpleasant ways. Sure. And, and so like that's kind of where I'm, where I'm saying is that like if you want to – be a high level performer in anything really you kind of have to you know as i'm saying build some sort of sustainable model of functioning some sort of like way that you can repeat that and keep growing and keep pushing yourself mm. without crashing daniel you're talking about something there i mean a big fan of that as an idea you're talking about balance, though, essentially, aren't you? I mean, people throw this word out a lot. Now, I have trouble with that word. I don't like it because when people are saying, when people are like, hey, you're just out of balance. Well, my balance is different than your balance, dude. You know, exactly. So, yeah. And I actually like to balance myself with extremes, right. which I found that like, that's why like with the whole COVID thing, I've been having an issue because like I like to complete isolation mm -hmm. and then go into super social events. Sure. And so it's basically like that's usually my balance where I like complete isolation and I just kind of go deep and come up with stuff and just kind of work completely on my own and then I feel like kind of restless and I feel like I need to go and throw myself in a completely polar opposite type of environment mm -hmm. um, and so that is two different extremes but they can actually balance each other I for a while was flirting with the idea of actually trying to be balanced I get like listless I get like attacks of apathy if I try to be completely balanced I'm like what's the point it, but what, what again, what is that I, as an idea? Because when somebody says to you, oh, you're out of balance, you need to balance things out. And again, yeah. I, I say to them, and I, I have had people tell me that all the time. I'm like, well, hang on a second. My balance, if you lived my life, I, I, yeah. and, I and again, you said something else there that I do want to unpack because I love that. I love this idea of systems and having mm -hmm. some sort of formulaic structure to the way you live your life. And, and that way you can kind of almost treat yourself, your body, your life as a science experiment and continue to make tweaks and adjustments so you're at the optimal yeah. level. And, and I yeah, think see, this, I is all, this is what it's all about, I mean, for me. Yeah. But, but again, that idea of balance. So right now, oh man, you, you said so much there that I, I want to dive into. But like 
thinking about this more in terms of like, um, what does that actually look like for you as an individual? Like, how do you truly own who you are, what your modality is, what, what your approach to, to your life is, what you want to do, what your goals are, and then trying to go, okay, well, what do I need to do? What does my daily life need to look like in okay. order to so go there? I know? am, I am freakish when it comes to self-analysis like awesome. my dad is like uh you need to stop sometimes because like i dissect the shit out of myself like like any truth doesn't matter how unpleasant it is i'm in, into it i'm like okay let's figure out where my weaknesses are where i lack why like te- you know issues things that i actually you know like like you analyze yourself actually and you and you if you're like truly honest with yourself yeah. you're pretty aware of where you're lacking yeah. And so, you know, that's where you're off balance, honestly. And right. so it's kind of like, you know, if you're super aggro and if you like tend to like lose your temper, then like, you know, you're you're overly choleric as a personality type. Mm-hmm. And like you might need to, you know, balance that by, let's say, something like meditation. If yeah. you have an issue with, you know, motivation and you are super calm and kind of like apathetic, then you need more aggression, actually. And yes. you might need more sort of different types of things that make you feel more kind of alive and adrenaline based things that actually kind of rev you up. And so that's kind of like what I'm saying. It really depends at sort of where you're lacking, what your interests are, because usually we are best at what we enjoy and what we and we enjoy what, what we're best at. And so that and that's kind of like drawing and painting, I think, really kind of helps you understand that premise to where it's like you should always be practicing what's most uncomfortable. And that's kind of the same thing with self-work. It's like if you avoiding an area, if you're avoiding an area, that's usually the area that needs the most work and attention. Mm-hmm. And because you systematically avoid it, it makes it even more important to address. Mm-hmm. And so like I, I, you know, a lot of times like I'll see people and, you know, I'm not necessarily telling them they're out of balance. But if I'm seeing someone and I'm thinking they're out of balance, it could be to one extreme or the other. And, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where sometimes I'm like, dude, what do you want? And that's kind of where it gets back to balance for balance sake works Mm -hmm. for monks. I don't think it works for a lot of today's generation, today's world even. And so, you know, and, and also goals purely as this, some sort of all encompassing, you know, I'm sacrificing everything to get to this goal Mm -hmm. that also backfires. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't, if you're not coming from one extreme or the other, it's almost like what, can you and that's why I talk about systems like if you don't think about it as some sort of altruistic balancing act you know that's arbitrarily important for no reason um, but more in the sense of okay I know what direction I want to go what can I change in my daily process in my personality in my sort of like habitual responses you know things like that in order to help me move in my own desired direction mm-hmm. and so like it, there's mo- it's easier to motivate yourself that way I think too because, you know, you're combining a sort of healthy lifestyle, a healthy sort of, you know, self-care, self-discipline, whatever it is, with actually going towards the direction that you actually want to go in. And so it's not some sort of arbitrary, mythical thing that you're doing for some sort of reason because you read it in a book or because your dad told you to. It's an actual, you know, like a, a way to accomplish the things that you want to accomplish. And so... You know, I think about it less as balance and more as actual, you know, giving yourself a chance to be become who the person you want to become and accomplish what you want to accomplish. And looking at it from that perspective, you're like, okay, well, what do I want to accomplish? Right. And that's where it gets into, okay, how do you know what you want to accomplish? Because a lot of people are saying, I don't know. 
Oh my and, goodness, man. So many people in this day and age are like, I don't know what I want to do. Yeah. And I don't understand I am that. usually like, well, I don't understand that either. I, no, I Let me rephrase that. I do understand that. Right. And I think the, one of the reasons for that is everybody thinks that, you know, and it does come into competitive stuff too. Because like mm. most people think they want the things that their friends want. Right. Most people think that they want the things that their parents want or the opposite. They want the things they think they want because their parents don't want them to do it. And so it's basically like it's a reaction to someone else. And that's kind of where I'm coming from, too, is that like if your goals are solely based on one way or another reacting to someone else, then they're not necessarily what you want. It's a reaction. Oh, man, uh, you're 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 really. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. mate. Because I and what happens when you get the goal, if you're basing it on something external like that, you're not satisfied. No, I'm not even satisfied a lot of times when I get the goals that I want. Right. So my whole thing is that like I'm not even that goal oriented. Like mm. I've like worked for years on something and then like been like, you know, like the, the, the consolation prize being like, wait, I've worked for years for this. And so it's like you put yeah. that much pressure and you work for years to some sort of, you know, future thing. It very rarely like brings you, you know, full on satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of like what I'm saying. Whereas, you know, instead of goals, you can have direction. And so it's like yeah. if you're moving in the right direction and you're consistently moving, that progression is, I think, what makes me happiest. Hmm. And so what I'm actually talking about is not accomplishing specific goals as much as progressing in my chosen path and my chosen direction. And that gives you a, a, a feeling of actual systemat uh, systematic growth. And I think that's one of the things that the human brain needs to be happy. I, I think so as well. I think when we're in that mode of, of uh, you know, production, so to speak, for lack of a better word, but when we're in that mode, I, I do think that that makes us happier. I, I found that I became so much happier when I took my focus away from myself and what my goals were, you know, air quotes, mm -hmm. goals, and what my ambitions were, and started focusing more on service. And as I started to focus there, mm -hmm. then suddenly it, it, it took on a whole different meaning for me. And now it's suddenly it's like, well, it's not about me, what I can do, and, and oh gosh, look how, look how good I can paint, or this or that, or look how much money I can make. Now it's like, well, what are you gonna do with that money when you get it? And who have you helped in the meantime? What are you contributing? And the thing that gives me the biggest buzz right now, more than selling paintings or anything like that, because I, I used to sell a lot of paintings for a lot of money. And now the thing that really excites me is like the comments on YouTube, the messages that I get and reports back from people who have said, I just watched this video and now I understand something new about color. And now I want to go and paint a wave. Now I want to go pick up those brushes I haven't touched in 35 years. You've inspired me. I'm like, that makes me feel like, yes. Okay. So it's about, That's awesome, it's about, about a sense oh, of service there, you know? And, yeah. and that, that is more validated than anything I've achieved for myself. But what you're saying there, like, I, I, I love that because a hundred percent, it is about, it's about owning those, those who are, you are and your, your direction, isn't it? It's exactly. about direction. And that, those are not mutually exclusive at all. You're talking sure. about an actual chosen direction that mm. you found based on personal like introspection, trial and error, personal mm -hmm. experience, mm -hmm. and you're pushing yourself in that direction. So like in, in, this, in essence, you're, you know, doing exactly what I'm kind of talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, but do, do and, you know what? I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but but one thing there though, again, it's just that the trial and error, right? It, it's mm -hmm. it's from achieving those things, and and because I I got to a point where I got the money, right? I I I had all this stuff going for me, 
And I was mm-hmm. miserable, dude. I was so freaking miserable all the time. And it just nothing was satisfying me. And I was yeah. like, well, then this isn't what it's about, is it? No. And that's kind of like what I'm saying, especially fine art or being mm. a creative. Like if you're miserable with doing what you're doing, mm. do something else. Yeah, for sure. Because like even if you can make a good living selling paintings, it's not necessarily the easiest way to make a living either. And it's not like some sort of like people think that you're sitting there with like a smile on your face, listening to like cool music, a few brush strokes, and no. then you do something weird. No, it's a grinding. Like you're sitting there like yeah. 12 hours yeah. a day painting and like yeah. arms stiff or whatever. Yeah. And it isn't, it's not that easy. So if you're not enjoying it, then yeah, it's not necessarily, it doesn't make that much sense if you're not really into it. Mm. I still enjoy selling paintings um, for sure. And it's not just the money, it's the actual, like there is a certain chasing there for sure. It's okay. that like sort of like success chasing. Uh, and it's like, a, it's a difficult thing. It's competitive and things like that. And I do enjoy it, but I'm kind of with you. It's not, you know, the answer to everything. It's mm. not going to like, it's not like some sort of button you can keep pressing for your whole life and then mm. just be super, super happy. It's also not going to make the work grow and, and, and like push you to the next level of, as an artist necessarily either. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about that. Like, what do I actually, like, what is important to me? Mm. And it's funny, every time I go through those types of thought processes, like a lot of it is just seeing what I'm capable of, to be honest. Like it's the simplest type of like, you know, almost childish motivation still is basically like, no, no, I want to see how far I can go. So the competition hasn't really left you, but you're competing with yourself. Yeah. I'm competing with history. I'm competing with the world. And that's kind of like, it's it's coming from, it's not a presumptuous place because I'm not, I'm never going to get where, you know, the pinnacle of everything because nobody really has. And I doubt I'll ever be, you know, as technically good as like repping or, you know, something like that. But that's that you know that that's why it's fun for me because yeah. it's like you know this endless climb and i that's that journey as long as i'm climbing and i'm moving in my desired direction yeah. makes me kind of happy what i've been realizing is i can get so obsessed with that that i can neglect other things that will cause problems later and so like mm-hmm. i agree with you actually that like you know diversifying you know teaching doing other things it actually does not only help you you know spread sort of the financial burden but i think it's actually beneficial for your brain and if you look at history too every single you know great artist is pretty much a teacher as well um because it does complement they do come you know those disciplines do complement each other and i think it's important to look at things from different perspectives and like i've realized after like starting a show at arcadia uh full time and then it was like he'd start you know steve was selling the paintings as quickly as i give them to him and it was basically like this race of like how many, you know, like deadline after deadline after deadline. And it was super fun for a while. And then I'm just kind of like, dude, you know, even success is some sort of draining thing to where it's like you kind of have to set your own balance as well. Yeah. And, you know, you do that for enough years in your bubble and you, you know, like the the actual elements of inspiration start to sort of be these distant memories that you're sort of trying to chase. Like, what what do I care about? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're, you know, living life a little bit more fully and you're still giving yourself time to explore, to see new things, to engage with people, to teach, to have these different experiences, I think that all comes back into the work. And so, you know, you know, touching on kind of what you were saying that like, you know, you still paint, but you're doing other things. I actually think that that's probably, you know, more important than ever for artists, especially now with like the whole COVID and the galleries you know, not being even seen in person. I think that like, you know, original sales are going to become, you know, slightly more difficult in the next few years. I mean, they already have, 
but like that's it's not magically going like the economy isn't just going to magically become you know great everywhere and things mm. like that mm-hmm. and you know a lot of people can't don't have access to schools right now and and they they can't go and study and they're, they're totally feeling isolated mm-hmm. and i think that what you're doing is more relevant right now than ever and i've actually i recently started a patreon um to sort of share you know, just different things in the studio, workshop, recordings, live streams, things like that. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's super important. And like, Mm -hmm. I've also been engaging with people more than I ever have in the past and just answering emails and doing mentorships and things like that. And just engaging, communicating because it's important Mm -hmm. and it actually totally makes me feel good as well. It makes me feel good that I'm helping. It makes me feel good that I'm, you know, sharing, engaging, interacting, because that's kind of the point of art in the first place. Like, point of art isn't to you know only be competitive and like make something that you're proud of and someone buys and then goes into their private collection i mean that's not it that's cool i like that aspect of it but like i've totally been also feeling like i want to engage with a larger audience i want to have an actual back and forth exchange not just a one way i want to hear what they think you know i want to know what people are experiencing and feeling when they're seeing the work or Mm -hmm. what they're even looking for um that's also why i've been like documenting a lot more of the process and just sharing different videos about like how I'm painting and you know the whole process stages because that's kind of the most interesting thing to me is the actual way that you make things and that kind of even gets into like I almost paint differently than most people because I'm using the paint differently because I'm obsessed with creating different ways of doing things that that's almost a perfect segue because I, I want to ask you all about your your technique and your your work itself uh, but but before we do before we do, I, I just want to go back a little bit if we can. And, and, and apologies, folks, for jumping all over the place here. But I'm curious. So you, you went from this young fellow, you're, you're now doing construction at your father's art academy. And then you start teaching these classes. When did you first start becoming, was there a clear point where it's like, I'm a professional artist now? I guess that would have been at 15, right? No. no, that's the funny thing. I okay. was like, maybe I'll be a lawyer. Maybe I was like very, oh, wow. um, yeah. Um, again, that's what I'm saying. I was always like more math side of things. And like, I, again, like I'm very, you know, struck and kind of structured and thought process and whatnot. And I was not one of those people that was like, I need to paint to be happy. Mm-hmm. That actually wasn't where I came from. I just also, I, I started enjoying art school because of the drills and the discipline more than the actual like it wasn't creative at the time it was like still lifes and cast drawings and you know life studies and you know figure drawing portraiture all this sort of classical curriculum and you know i basically wasn't actually even trying to make paintings i was just trying to get better um i was also fencing competitively at the time and so it was kind of like similar types of things it was just training and like getting better and like i've always been really obsessed with the process of improvement like how do you get better? And that's like, I think it's funny. I think um, I heard like Julio Reyes was talking about something similar where it's like, I think he was like um, a soccer player before and he would love the competitiveness. And like, I think a lot of people that are competitive athletes go into the whole, tra- you know, traditional drawing and painting because it has like that similar, you know, element to it, where that syst- oh. systematic improvement. Shout out and... to Lloyd Lewis, two-time world <laughs> kickboxing champion, who people, ah, people yep. will remember from the last podcast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. there and is definitely a link there. There is a link there. And I was like, again, I was homeschooled. I did, I did fence competitively for, for a while. Um, 
But, you know, after I sort of transitioned to art, that kind of became my improvement sort of ladder. And that sort of obsessive, you know, a, a way for my obsessive brain to sort of feed on something so it doesn't feed on itself. And, you know, that was my motivation for a while. And it wasn't until later that I actually got genuinely passionate. Um, and I and I very much am. And that's kind of where it, it came a little bit later for me. And it, it wasn't, you know, like, I don't know if I was, I don't know, I like 8, 10, 15 some people that are actually super interested in actually drawing and making art, I think they're mostly coming from a slightly different place than I was, to be honest. Um, I came in from like the other side. Like I had a lot of skills before I knew what to do with them, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's funny. I talked to like students that like, I need to put this out and I, I like, I don't know how, but I need to. And I'm kind of like, that's kind of awesome place to come from too. Like, you know, in a certain sense, I'm like, that's awesome. Like, I'm proud of you for actually wanting something that bad and being, you know, because like there is that aspect too. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm coming in is like figure out what how your brain ticks and build a system or a pathway that gives you a higher chance of success. Because if you're coming in and, and it's funny, I actually recently was, was thinking, I think most people have either a knowledge issue or a motivation issue. Wow. And so if you think about it, like if you're knowledgeable and you're motivated, you're fine. And so most people like when they're at an impasse, I'm like usually trying to understand is there a lack of knowledge? In which case, if you're motivated, you go acquire that knowledge and then you're fine. Or if it's the lack of motivation and or if it's lack of will, you know, or like and that's kind of saying like I think the will aspect of things is where it kind of is almost both most dangerous and most kind of difficult to pinpoint mm-hmm. because, you know, what is what is it that actually gives us drive? What actually makes us push through things? And that's sort of like, it is different for different people. And like, I've seen it and I've almost experienced it. Like when you're will sick or like soul sick, that's when it gets super tough. And that's kind of where my you know advice to people is like, try to avoid that at all costs. It doesn't matter if you're chasing the wrong thing. Don't get into that place where you're actually soul sick because that's, that's where it's hard to get out of there. And okay. so, right. you know, the knowledge... that's the first time I've ever heard that, but I, 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 I like that term, right? It's, you see it where it's like, it's not about, you can see super talented and super capable people that just don't have the drive anymore or like just lost whatever it was wow. that kept them chasing. Yeah. Absolutely. And I call it soul sick and yeah. it's true. Cause it's like the, where does, I actually think that a lot of identity comes from our will. Mm. Okay. Like if you think about it, like I, and again, I obsessively psychoanalyze myself. Um, like, who am I? I'm not necessarily my mind because I actually have an identity. And even when I'm floating around in theories and stuff, I still have like a sense of self that isn't my actual brain. But, you know, your will is who you are almost, or it's like mm-hmm. super tied into who you are because the will is what makes you actually choose a path or go one way or another or think of something as important or push through something when it's super difficult and the obstacles are overwhelming. And it's interesting, too, because like, I think humans almost idolize willpower. Mm. Like if you really think about more moralistic stories and all kinds of like, you know, ancient different, you know, national stories from different places or um, aphorisms or whatever it is, a lot of it has to do with that sort of like overcoming things and like the strength of will. Yeah. And, and that's kind of where I think a lot of like who we are is. And so like if you if you have will issues, 
or like different, you know, difficulty in like making yourself do things. Mm-hmm. I think that's like an important thing to actually address and to mm-hmm. like take time. And that's why I'm saying kindness is super important because like you can't brute force some of those. Like if you're having a serious issue with motivation, you can't necessarily just brute force that. Sometimes you need to take a step back. Sometimes you need to like just lay there for a while, whatever it is to sort of come back to a place where you can actually start to, you know, dream and chase again. Mm. Well, it's interesting when I find myself in those sorts of moments, it's when I experience something that we were talking about earlier, which is, which is burnout. Um, so yep. uh, my father has often said to me, he's like, Andrew, be careful. You don't know where the line is until you've crossed it. And I, I oh man, I cross it all the time, but I find that my okay. line is just, it's getting a little bit further and further and further out now. Cause uh, I find that I'm like, and it's almost like I'm checking, I'm taking the temperature. I'm going, am I there yet? No, we're nearly redlining, not quite. And then, oh, I'm on the couch and I'm out for days, you know, kind of thing. Yep. Um, it hasn't happened for I know, several I know months. that process so yeah. well. Right, yeah. right. And that's kind of where it's like I used to love pushing those boundaries. I still kind of do. I just try not to do it as often because, like, I would – my entire life was on that line. So, so there's no there's no clear-cut uh, – you know, date as such, there's, it just seems like this is something that has been a a process of piecing it together as you kind of piece together your identity, your sense of self here. And now, you know, you find, so what, when did it, when did it first start really uh, becoming like the the self-affirming thing where you were like, okay, I'm here, this is what we're doing. So I'm going to put off all that other stuff that I was kind of entertaining as a thought. Now it's about this. Now it's about Daniel Bilmes as an artist. This is the walk here. You know, it was super gradual. Mm. And it really was, you know, you do something long enough and you push yourself hard enough and like you you really do develop like a love for it. Otherwise, you're not going to keep doing it, honestly. For sure. Um, and I, to be completely honest, don't like low level shit. I like high level stuff. And okay. so pushing through into actually being able to consider the nuance of expression, like the actual mood of a piece, like the actual fun stuff that everybody wants to get into. And, you know, in art school, you're like told, you know, proportions, 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 or, you know, you're talking about understanding how to do what you want to do, mm-hmm. but then eventually, you're able to do what you want to do. And that transition, I think, is when I really developed a passion for it because it's a whole nother thing. And the interesting thing there is I was almost like, I was in art school for a lot, for a while because like I enjoy it. And so Mm -hmm. it was like my dad's school, I was teaching, I was studying, I'd, you know, hire the model, set up the model however I wanted to, pick the first spot, start painting, and then the rest of the class would basically gather around. And it was super fun. But eventually I was kind of like, okay, where from here? And I don't want to get stuck in academia because a lot of artists, I think, get stuck in academia. It's kind of like, you know, you're either in the school studying, then you're teaching in the school, you're teaching other people, you're trying to, again, evolve. But I was kind of like, okay, what do I actually want? I want to make it as an actual artist Mm -hmm. more than I want to be, you know, in the sort of like art education sector for my whole life. Right. And it's funny because I've come back to the education sector on my own terms. Mm -hmm. But it's like for me, it's like I want to, you know, just because something's more difficult doesn't mean it's less appealing to me. It's more appealing usually. So I'll get myself in trouble where I'm like, okay, what's the most difficult option? I'll take that one. Mm -hmm. 
it's like a weird almost backwards way where I like to challenge myself to not take the easy path to take, you know, like the almost the hard road. Sometimes it's actually counterproductive. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was for me almost like, okay, I want to make it as an artist. And then it was trying to understand. And that was when I was a little bit older. And actually, after I moved to LA, and I was like in my early 20s. That's when I was like, okay, I can paint like this, I can paint like that, I can paint like super, you know, one way or another. Because like I always tried to get good at painting in different styles and different ways. Because again, I didn't want to only paint one way, because that's the only way I was capable of. To me, it's always a cop out to pretend like you chose a path that was your only option. And so, you know, I'm like practicing painting super, you know, Sargent-esque, and then I'm going into super more polished stuff and, and getting into like, you know, full colors, you know, monochromatic, all these different ranges. And I was like, okay, that doesn't work. Like you need to actually pick, right? And the actual process of understanding not just, you know, picking at random direction, but I basically put myself under the microscope and started studying my own tastes. So like I wanted to decide what way I want to paint based on what I actually want to do based on my own choices, based on my own preferences, my own aesthetics. And so I was like, okay, I can do this and I can do that and I can do this, but what is my choice? And so I started looking at like thousands of images, like Pinterest, Instagram, everything, and I would as soon as I felt something, like I liked an image purely on like an instinctive level, I'd save it. And then I would just look at images and images and museums and, you know, it was art, photography, film, whatever it was, just imagery. Mm-hmm. And going through that, I would then dissect what is it about, like find the pattern in these images, right? So it's like, what about these images? Is there a consistency in subject matter? Is it just an abstract shape type of thing? And I actually started to piece together how my responses to art worked in a certain sense. And then I tried to build paintings almost like with those pieces. Like, you know, I love love texture. And that's what I realized. Like a lot of it had to do with the abstract textures and the abstract some like woven lines of how like things are made. Like the way I draw and paint is almost like inside out mm. more than um, like painting the surface. And so I like found these objects and I started to like almost like almost compile a list of things that I was really into painting and things that I want on the wall, things that, you know, what colors would I hang if I was painting a painting for myself? Like if I had my imaginary dream home, like what painting would I create for that for me, not for some random person that I don't care about. And so I was like, okay, the most genuine work I can make is something that I'm making for myself. Because I know myself best. And I'm also the most critical, you know, asshole that I know. And so I'm basically kind of like, you know, was analyzing my own sort of takeaways, experiences, feelings, reactions to imagery in order to actually find how I felt about things. And, and then I was a little bit clearer on it. And I started almost like trying to build pieces with those ingredients. I want to I want to just touch on that. I really want to highlight what you're saying right there because what what you've just enunciated there Daniel is 
is probably the most important thing for any artist, in my opinion, which is being truly authentic. What piece do you want to hang on the wall? What is your unique voice? What is the thing you're trying to achieve? The amount of messages yep. and, and kind of questions and things that I get from people uh, that are about, hey, what, what should I paint? What's popular right now? What would right? what yeah. other people what do other people want to see? I, I can't really think what I want to do. And I just keep getting back to them. Hey, listen, buddy, just do you. Who are you? Get that out. Because what ends up happening is people are going to hate it. People are going to hate it, whatever you're doing. But there are going to be a select few people who really love it. That's your audience right there. Start painting for you, and that audience is going to show up. So for me, like, I had to put that out of my mind. I've got my critics out there. I've got my haters. I've got people who think, ah, you're sappy. It's, it's, it's thoughtless. I mean, you're just creating this or that or whatever. I don't care about those people. It's not about them. I'm making myself happy. That's my job. I'm, do, I'm doing what I really want to do based on what pushes those buttons for myself. And it's essentially what you're explaining here as well. And I think out of that, you end up finding the 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 people that genuinely love Daniel Bilmez as a result it's like wow and, and you've also the interesting thing is the irony of this is you end up creating something unique because again I just want to say here that you have created figurative and portrait work with an application of the paint that I have never seen before I've never come across this technique before well, thanks man but no one is no one is like as crazy crazy enough to actually try to make paintings that way because it, it's a super difficult like weird process that well, like, how do you do I, it? sometimes i'm like how did i okay. why did i do take this take us from the start how do you do it so it's funny i actually have like three different processes that i actually work in pretty much um and people are like it's all super textured but like the process is very different for for different sort of um paintings and so sort of, like my most one of my favorites that I've been actually not doing that often because that's what really where I hurt myself is it's pretty much all a primo um, because I can, I love moving paint as it's drying. And so like I'll scratch into it when it's almost dry. I will move it with a soft, you know, brush when it's super wet with a firm brush when it's a little drier. And so what I actually do, and it's usually like a smaller piece that way is I will like on the first day lay in all the paint and again, I prepare the surface in a special way. I don't use too much paint. It's like a very specific application, consistency, exact brushes, different textures, things like that. But I'll basically, to simplify it, kind of lay in all the paint on the first day. And then for the next two days, I'm pretty much scratching and scraping and moving it as it's drying. And that's when I hurt myself because I'll do like 16 hour days because like I can do more when the, when the paint's wet than I can when it's dry. And so I will literally see how many hours I can put in as it's drying. And, you know, you don't want to do that in like a heat wave necessarily. But um, like when, the, when it's a little colder in the studio, I'm able to actually do these. I, I'll work the painting section by section and I'll pretty much finish it in one pass. Um, and usually for those paintings, I'll like have a, like an area about this big that gets pretty much finished and then I'll slowly kind of add on little pieces. And so it's kind of like, wow. it's not like you're completely doing, it's not completely all the prima, but you're getting the essence of a piece in the, in that first bender basically. Mm -hmm. And then you're sort of stitching and weaving little elements to it. So that's like a, like a really enjoyable as well as sometimes damaging way for me to work. Mm. And then I've also been sort of, um, you know, like the way that I've, 
worked for years and I still sort of do a lot is kind of breaking things up into like the grisaille stage, which is, you know, pretty much underpainting slash I'm basically like weaving my shadows together mm-hmm. and then I'll come in and work the lights and midtones section by section. So it's kind of like, and sometimes the lights and midtones will have, you know, two, three, four, five layers on them. Um, and so if I'm doing, let's say a multi-figure painting, you know, with three figures and, you know, dresses and, you know, fabric and background, then I'll, I, then I'll usually do it more that way. Um, where I'm coming in, I don't do an underdrawing at all. So it's like directly onto the panel. And then I'll basically really just try to get the drawing in with oil paint. And it's usually like pretty monochrome. And again, as it's drying, I'll still move the paint, wipe it, adjust it. And then at the end, I actually have like a push pin that's stuck into a pen. I can show show you. So basically like this tool right here is where a lot of the the detail work is. It's actually a push pin. So like I'm scratching away elements of the paint when it's almost dry. Wow. And I created a special surface for it, which is like, I start with the wood panels and then I, it's like six coats of different things, which kind of creates, it's like a super smooth, but Mm -hmm. there's like a little tiny bit of grit on it. Um, and it's just like the surface that works really well with my techniques. So brilliant. So it's a wooden panel and do you, do you Mm -hmm. lay any canvas or linen over the top or is it just gesso straight over the top of the wood? It's, wood then shellac then multiple coats of gesso then i do like these acrylic medium washes with a squeegee to get like it super smooth and then i do an oil wash so there's like literally six or seven eight coats sometimes before i start painting wow man and it creates i'm I'm almost (laughs) i'm creating an atmosphere so it's like an environment almost and so when i'm painting i'm almost painting my figures into this abstract i usually won't completely cover it and so I'll glaze into that environment. And so it almost creates depth. And so it's like it's the atmosphere, which I'm also super interested in. It's like, like how do you create the illusion of atmosphere, of like the space around the figure? So it's not just the figure and it's not just a background, but you're also almost like feel the three-dimensional element and the, and the sort of and the actual space around the figure. Oh, it's just stunning work, though, and I love your your mixture of imagery. I'm I'm just looking at some of it now, like the way, you know, the birds and the shapes of the wings interact with the figure, you know, itself, and then the the flowers as well. It's just stunning work. It's interesting as well that you use the word stitch and weave because when I look at your work, it does really remind me of embroidery. You know, there 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 are these little composite lines that it's the in isolation there's a sharpness to it but the Mm -hmm. the juxtaposition like of of all of them together it forms a smooth cohesive whole it's just that's beautiful stuff man that's really thanks yeah i i really enjoy that it's kind of like i'm saying is like even when i draw with charcoal like i don't use a stump i don't blend at all i'm actually like you know weaving the different lines into these solid forms um and you know you're an artist you know it's like a lot of it is actually control over value and control over you know understanding a form and like a lot of it comes down to control is actually what it is yes and that's something that i also just really enjoy is it is kind of like a i've kind of make jokes i've almost fetishized self-control um, in a certain sense to where it's like, I do like to do difficult things and practice level of control and, you know, dexterity to where I can pull off things that sometimes I don't know how I did it. Like I can't really forge my own paintings. 
<laughs> Hang on, let me get my head around that for a second. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> like I wouldn't be able to Im- to make an exact replica of one of my paintings. Wow. So it's each one is a unique expression. Something special. Totally. Happens. And I've tried yeah. to make really similar paintings, and mm-hmm. when I do that, they're usually not as good. Um, and so I actually need to keep evolving the process. Otherwise it almost stagnates and I don't, and I feel like, you know, it's worse than it was, which is the worst thing for me. So like, if I feel like I'm, you know, doing this instead of this, I'm like, ah, I get really hard. I get really hard on myself actually. Um, and so for me, it's almost like, okay, I need to keep evolving the process in which case it's never the same. And so it's almost like, it's like a, it's almost like I'm I'm figuring out ways to sort of use my brain and thought process in order to create interesting work. And that's also why I'm so process oriented is my best work comes out of me being process oriented. Like mm. my favorite paintings are the ones where I was trying a new process, to be honest, almost right. always. Right. Okay. That's, and it's that's not awesome. like completely new. It's slightly different. It's like that yeah. slight adjustment or Just like a tweak oh, on do, it. tweak yeah Yeah. i keep tweaking my own process Mm. and i think that's why it's so unusual is because like i've been tweaking for years it started with being a little bit more similar a little bit more normal and then i just kept pushing things that i was interested in and i became obsessive with them like texture like the ways that i've come up with like i used i started actually the first pieces i ever showed at arcadia um i did in acrylic it was for a drawing show and so Steve invited me for a drawing show. I always wanted to show at Arcadia and I was super excited. And I was like, okay, I don't like a lot of finished drawings as art pieces. I love to draw. It's actually my favorite. But there's something in a painting, a certain permanence, the, like you know, depth of values, things like that, that sometimes is lacking in a lot of drawings. Like graphite doesn't get dark enough and it glares. Charcoal is kind of impermanent. I don't like to use fixative. And so, like, I wanted to make something that has, like, the, the perks of, of painting and drawing and looks like a drawing. And so I was messing with these different mediums and coming up with, like, I have, like, all these different jars of different acrylic that were different levels of transparency. And then I would come in with this tiny brush and I would just hatch with it. Wow. And so, yeah. like, I did this whole drawing out of these hatch marks. And then that's when I started with a pin, push pin. I would scratch into it. So it was almost like this hash lines with a brush and then I would scratch into it with a pin to sort of bring the lights back. And so it was basically this like super delicate scratch lines with all these like delicate lines. And then I'm like, okay, I loved it. And I enjoyed doing it even though that was super time intensive. Um, And so then I actually tried to translate that process a little bit more to oil. Because I was like, you know, oil is my first love and that's always like, you know, where I kind of gravitate back towards. And so I actually, a lot of my oil painting process came from my weird acrylic experimentation, which came from my charcoal drawing. And so it kind of came full circle. Yeah, yeah. And so it's almost like I'm trying to take, because like my charcoal drawing is where I originally actually developed my style and process, to be honest. That's like the very, that's like the most natural free flow where it's like all straight lines that I sort of weave together into these forms. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, okay, how do I make that work in paint? And a lot of the tools that I use, like even these like different rubber tools, like I'll use the edge of them and it makes these straight lines. Yeah. that? That that literally just looks like a cake spatula. It is. And I have like different ones and I, I use these things a lot in painting. Wow, man. And the push pin. So like I, I'll usually 
Like I don't take paint, mix it, put it on a brush and just apply it like ever. There's always these weird processes and things that I do with the paint and different tools that I use. Wow, man. Like I hate glare. Hate glare. Glare. And so glare. Yeah. yeah. I declared war on glare when I was like 12. Um, and so like, I hate it when you, you know, like a bristle brush in a dark paint and you make that juicy brush stroke with, with like a, like a shadow and yeah. then like it's forever, forever glares. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. That's why I don't yeah. use bristle brushes for shadows for the most part. I use synthetic. Obviously. Yeah, right. There you totally. go. Yeah. And so like I took it further to where like I'll apply the darks usually with those almost like spatula like things, which makes it totally flat. So it doesn't glare. Right. Absolutely. Um, and then, or I'll like glaze it over like five mm. layers so that it's completely flat. So there's no glare. So it's like little idiosyncrasies like that. I kind of like put them all together into this like weird painting process. Yeah. Um, that is, I don't know if I call it painting. It's you. I'm using paint, but I don't really feel like I'm painting. You're really pushing the boundaries, aren't you? I mean, it really is pushing that definition as such because it it, it does sound a lot like drawing. It's interesting as well to, to hear how all of these different things. You know, you're explaining how it's coming full circle from the drawing to the acrylic painting to oil painting, and now you know back again. I'm finding that that drawing is is really causing me to revisit oil painting with new eyes. You know, it really is because totally. I, I, I've just recently I, I had neglected drawing for years. And now I because I, I, I was just painting all the time. I wasn't really doing much sketching. Yep. Sketching was just part I've gone of through the, that too. Yeah, it was just part of the design process to to work yep. out what my composition was doing. So I didn't start off blind with a painting, but it's like, OK, got my composition. All right, let's go. Uh, but I would never be just drawing for drawing's sake. But now that I'm actually doing finished drawings, it's causing me to go into the image more, tease out more detail, focus on my tones. And, and I, I think the paintings are getting better as a result as well. It's, it's totally. I mean, yeah. like Ong at his atelier, he had a sign that basically read, you come here to learn how to draw and you leave knowing how to paint. Awesome. Um, I love that. And so, yeah, there is like drawing. It's funny. Edward Lanteré, who was Rodin's teacher, had a saying in his book, basically, that drawing is more important for sculptors than it is for painters. So it's everyone is basically drawing, drawing, drawing. Any great teacher is basically teaching drawing more That's than anything. It. That's it. Um, and it's true. It really is the foundation of everything. And, you know, the painting aspect of things is where I think it really ties into aesthetic and personal choice. And that's kind of where it kind of comes in to where, you know, I drawing does as well. But as a teacher, you're almost teaching more, you know, drawing. The, the the logistics of medium for sure people really want to know like which mediums which color combinations things like that which is helpful you know you can give people a, a working model so that they can actually start painting instead of like you know working with a palette that's so off balance that it doesn't even make any sense things like that mm. but i do think that like the drawing elements are it's the framework on which we build our paintings for sure mm. and you know that is pretty generally agreed on by almost any you know teacher in drawing or sculpture or sorry painting or sculpture and so I do think it all comes back to drawing and that's where you know my own obsession with drawing and the way that I drew differently than other people actually ended up translating to me painting differently than other people and you know also like color for instance like I used to paint super colorful paintings and you know why this is kind of the funny thing is it's harder like I was like, okay, what's the most difficult color? Like real impressionistic understanding of color is probably the most difficult. 
And then what's the most hardest way to draw? It's like, okay, fully constructive Russian sort of academic, you know, structural drawing. And I was like, what if I marry the two? Right, makes fully, fully modeled, real drawing with like impressionistic color. Oh, you're living so dangerous. Be- oh man, exactly. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And I was like, <laughs> okay, that is probably the most difficult thing yeah, to man. do. So yeah. obviously, that's what I'm chasing. Um, and so I had like a full colorist, you know, Henry Henchy. Um, that's like, a new uh, name Nelson for me. Shanks. That's a new. No. Um, I went and studied with Nelson Shanks for like a, a piece for a little bit. Um, my dad actually sent me there um, for a workshop. And Nelson Shanks is a big colorist, hmm. and his color teacher, I think, was Henry Henchy. And if I'm remembering correctly, I might be totally off, actually. Um, and so his palette was like these, you know, all of these super high chroma colors. And I was like, okay, I got this. Let's do this. And so I was painting a lot, using a lot more color in my paintings. And then as I was sort of putting myself through this sort of like, you know, aesthetics, self analysis, you know, process, I started realizing that most of the images I like do not have a bunch of bright colors in them. Almost none of them do. And so I was basically like, wait a second. I love little splashes of design color. I like, I'm not, I don't, it's not that I dislike color. I like color to be designed in painting and where you're actually not being literal with color, but you're using color to, you know, just the same way as you use values or some, you know, same way as you use anything else. Like, I like designed color instead of, oh, why is this color here? Because it was in front of me, you know? And I, I actually don't like a lot of paintings that are painted from a slightly literal position of color. And that's just something I actually found after practicing painting that way for, for, for years. Right, okay. And I'm glad I actually went through that because I, even though my color is subtle, I actually use some, some interesting color combos and some pretty saturated colors in my palette to sort of bring in those like subtle cools in the face things like that you know so that it's not just different variations of gray which so, i don't like necessarily it's looking at your your use of color here and, and this portrait here i'm looking at right now at the moment is simply called anonymous 8 by 12 oil on panel um mm-hmm. beautiful absolutely stunning but i i i'm i'm looking at it i'm thinking uh, just off the top of my head let's just see if i can do it I, I i definitely think you've got a magenta of sorts but probably raw umber raw sienna burnt sienna burnt sienna okay yeah uh yellow raw, ochre yellow ochre okay yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, any any thalos or any uh, oh like... yeah the thalo green and permanent rose those are the two you're picking up on correctly. right yeah 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 okay because i mean this one especially it's got that little hint in the eyes um and you know how beautiful. saturated thalos are Oh, it's they're intense. Uh, yeah. I've heard it referred to, and I've I've talked about this in the um, in in some of my videos that uh, it's a bully. It goes around, knocks crap out of all the other colors on the palette. Totally. Yeah. I love thalo green. So I basically yeah. like my thalo green and my permanent rose with the yellow ochre deep, which I use actually only Michael Harding yellow ochre deep. It's it's like right. a super saturated yellow right. ochre. It's amazing. Right. So it's like a golden color. And it has more tinting strength strength than most yellow ochres, and so it can it can actually balance the permanent rose and the thalo green. Right. And with those colors, and I also use lead white, and the mm. white, it pretty much covers all the cools in the face. 
Uh, that that right there is is a limited palette in and of itself, isn't it? So I, I'm I'm kind making of, a note. Yeah. I'm making a note of this. So we got phthalo green, permanent rose, yellow ochre, and a Kremnitz white. I'll put there as a, as a, as a lead white. Yeah. I'm going to play with that. I'm going to give you full credit in my color mixing video because totally. I, I I just I find that so interesting. It's amazing what happens like the with, the, with when you add white to the permanent rose and the um, phthalo green. Mm. It almost creates a warm blue it's a freakish yeah. thing you can make a warm blue which is like Counter, almost an impossibility in itself yeah. yeah and and then with the yellow ochre and i use yellow ochre deep by michael harding yeah okay i wonder uh, i wonder if i could get away with a transparent yellow oxide that's what i possibly got here. yeah because a lot of ochres are too gray and they they get yeah. overpowered by the the high chroma colors and they're very opaque too yeah my, my my yellow ochre here I'm using is is pretty darn opaque. It's got a very high tinting strength, but that transparent mm -hmm. yellow oxide I think would work really well. Totally, but, yeah. Dude. Indian yellow mixed into there would, would also right. could, could work well. Right. Um, but yeah, with the white, it gives you such a range because like most of the time the cools in the face will either go to the violet or the green. Wow. You know, they don't really go blue that often. Sometimes they do, but like the actual, you know, our, our 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 veins look green and then like there's all those pinks and hues and so like totally. the combination of the like the I usually like I'll take the, my cools either slightly to the the red the pink mm -hmm. or slightly to the green and I'll play them off of each other and and that's something I actually did learn from Nelson Shanks and, and the whole color thing whereas like you know you have to pick Otherwise, you mix mud, and so it's almost like you have to compare the different cools to each other and decide which one's going more violet, which one's going more green. Otherwise, they're all in this sort of weird gray area. Extraordinary, yeah. And you've painted somebody here, the uh, perennial, um, beautiful, uh, darker-skinned lady here. It's just phenomenal. So, how would you treat a darker skin tone? you know like a, you like, know yeah more african totally. kind of tones because there's yeah, there's i see is, a lot of subtle blues coming through but that may be a little bit more heavy with the sienna because there's this beautiful sure. flush of warmth coming through the eyes and the nose there i'm geeking out right now dude this is so cool thanks man yeah so i the, my original two colors that i always start the painting with mm -hmm. is burnt sienna and ultramarine blue really? and the cool thing with the burnt sienna and ultramarine blue combo is instead of using like a burnt umber um, is it allows you to also go cooler and warmer, darker and lighter. And so you're, you're actually like, I'll mix certain areas a little bluer and darker, warmer and redder. And so I start thinking about cools and warms from the beginning. And so even in my, you know, monochromatic underpainting, it's not one generic color. Like I'll, I'll push the underpainting slightly warmer in areas and slightly cooler in areas. And that kind of helps me set a theme, especially like a temperature theme in a painting. Mm -hmm. And the interesting, interesting thing with darker skin is the, the value range is wider, but the lights are not any darker. So it's like the highlights on super dark skin are just as bright. Sometimes they almost seem like brighter by contrast than the highlights on super light pale skin. And so usually the you know ultramarine blue and burnt sienna is just going to be in you know covering more of the area but then that sort of combination of permanent rose phthalo green and uh, yellow ochre definitely still comes in it just usually kind of gets glazed over the underpainting that's you know a little bit more prevalent or it's coming in in narrower areas within like highlights and lights hmm. 
because you know the burnt sienna is a really burnt sienna ultramarine and ultramarine blue is already like a really great combo for a lot of the um, darker skin tones. Phenomenal. Yeah, that's I, I'm making. I'm like literally making notes right now. I'm gonna go play with some paint after this. This is awesome. You're you're an intense dude, Daniel. If you don't mind me saying. Um, so Seriously? you you managed to, um, it, but it's in a good way, in a really good way. Um, because you you just seem like you're totally engaged, totally inspired. You're thinking constantly. Um, how's your poor wife? How does she how does she do it? Um, taking it day by day. Okay. okay. And um, I ask you, I ask you that because yeah, I, I, I feel I'm a little bit similar and I managed to find somebody, uh, you know, with, who's foolish enough to marry me nearly 10 years ago. And, yeah. um, you know, bless I tell her. her she has a terrible taste in men. <laughs> but the thing is, is that I, I, I'm just curious. I mean, it's kind of going back a little bit to what we we're talking about at the start of our conversation and that idea of balance. I always find this very interesting. I, I look at my wife and I'm like, you actually balance me out because I, oh, I've got all this stuff going on. I'm like, ah, you know, go, go, go. And I'm, I'm training hard. I'm working hard. I'm trying to get all this stuff done. And she is just a more, much more relaxed, much more, you know, just take it as it comes type person and, and totally levels me out. Yeah. I mean, my wife is pretty amazing. We're actually, we had our first anniversary our wedding anniversary was earlier this year, basically. Um, so we got married last year, and it's it's been awesome. Um, she's also creative, and so you know, she's a, she's a photographer. She actually helps me a lot of times when we're shooting references and things like that. And so she's all like interested in the arts, and I think that really helps um, because like I, I do talk a lot about random things that I you know nerd out on, and sometimes I'm like, are you interested? And I think at this point, sometimes she just pretends that she is because, you know, it's a nice thing to do. Uh, but I know for a fact that in the beginning she was interested <laughs> Right. Yeah. when we started dating, you know. <laughs> awesome, man. Awesome. Oh, lucky us, huh? <laughs> totally. Oh, man. Yeah, she's also in, in a lot of my paintings, which actually was like one of the I, I realized a while ago that I, I probably shouldn't marry someone that I'm not into painting because, right. you know, you paint a lot of uh, oceans. I paint a lot of women. And mm -hmm. so it's funny. I had a relationship back in the day and I remember like the questions like, why don't you paint me more? And I was like, huh, okay, I need to, I need to avoid that one. So you kind of have to marry someone that you want to paint. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, and I've, I've drawn Rachel several times and, uh, but I, I need to paint her more. I have done very few paintings. There's actually a painting that I did of her that's just sitting off screen here that I always keep above nice. the desk. But um, it was a demo for a class. But um, yeah, I, I, I need to do that more. <laughs> Too many less 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 waves, more portraits of Rachel. Oh man! No man, I'm actually saying that like the you have uh, great excuses. It's like it's not you. It's the uh, you know I, I just uh, you know I'm I'm into the waves, man. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's interesting. I, I've recently started becoming a lot more active on social media. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm literally just posting what I'm working on 
at the moment and trying to post twice a day to Instagram and Facebook. Mm -hmm. And, you know, through the process of doing that, it's like, what am I going to post? Well, I might as well post post what I'm working on and how far I got today. And so, uh, you know, it just, it looks like I've done a lot of waves, but the waves actually, I haven't painted a seascape in a long time before this recent series. So uh, I I got a commission. I I dig the series, by the way. Oh, thank you. I I really like what you're doing with the waves and your explanations are pretty great with, um, you know, I've also been nerding out a little bit on just different, you know, channels and sort of social streams because where else are you seeing art right now? <laughs> right. Like seriously. Yeah. And not only that, but like, you know, as I said, I just started a sort of Patreon channel. I'm also creating more content. And so like, that's how I actually discovered you more seriously. Cause like I had seen your work before, but like actually paying attention to like content is when I found your stuff. And I was like, wow, he's making great content. And that's actually your content is how I got, you know, introduced to your work. Right. Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. Yep. Awesome. But it's awesome getting an opportunity to meet you and just geek out about art and life. Uh, It's it's interesting how these how these uh, these connections take place. I've met so many people through the podcast and through just putting content out there and, and either they find me or I find them. But, you know, I've, I've made a lot of connections with a lot of people around the world. And I, I just find that it's conversations like these that just do add a lot of richness and color to the to the overall landscape, I think. And, and I, I'm getting more out of it than anybody, I think. <laughs> it's funny because I was basically like almost flirting with the idea of starting a podcast myself in order to actually have great conversations because that's something I'm missing totally. So like when you invited me, I'm like, sure, totally. I'd like to talk to you regardless. And that's kind of like where I'm at as well. Like I don't necessarily have the, you know, time right now because I'm doing all these other projects and I have so many painting deadlines to actually launch a podcast, but I'm into it too. And that's Mm kind of like what I'm saying. I think, you know, this type of exchange and just different thoughts and talking to people, you know, in doesn't matter where they are with the podcast, which is cool yeah. in like different settings and, you know, exchanging different, you know, philosophies and perspectives is really kind of where it comes into. I think it's super interesting. And I think Absolutely. it's very beneficial for us as, you know, hopefully someone's going to get something out of this. Oh, I'm sure um, they will. I mean, but, for me, even listening, listening to some of your answers and things like I've had several light bulb moments. And I think that this is the point of it as well. It's that I'm always just talking to that one person as well and hoping that if just one person will find something from what you've said, because you you have an interesting and unique take on on living as an artist. And and there have been so many little gems in this conversation alone that I know I've gotten something out of it. Um, I'm I'm curious, though, mate, like your what's what's next for you because we do live in a very interesting time right now very interesting time and and i'll just give you a little snapshot of where i'm coming at it from i i have a very i'll have a very alternative view of what this current pandemic is all about i'll leave it there what i'm more concerned about for us as artists is how we're going to approach and meet the new economic paradigm um, me too yeah. it's funny i don't know how alternative your position is we don't need to get into it but i actually think that like we'll a do lot it of off air probably, <laughs> but that, yeah, yeah yeah i think a lot of people are probably you know not necessarily disagreeing with you um so you know the sort of ec- economic ramifications and lifestyle shifts that is sort of where i'm at as well because kind of where i'm at is you know don't try not to worry too much about the things that you can't really affect um there's enough you know, to keep you occupied. And, and there's enough things that need your attention, especially when the economy's 
tanking. Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of at like, you know, you need to stay on track more than ever now. And so like, you know, going super far into directions that, you know, aren't directly helping you and your family is not necessarily as, as, as difficult as it is to avoid these days. Almost. It's almost like you kind of have to keep yourself on track. Otherwise, you know, a year is going to pass, you know, there's going to be difficulties to deal with, you know, most likely. And so like, if you're not doing well, and if you're not sort of building your own life, then it's only going to be worse. And so that's kind of like where I'm coming from there. Uh, And, you know, we've all, you know, it's so easy to get distracted now that you almost have to like shut it off a little bit Mm -hmm. while still kind of paying attention because, you know, you can't stick your head in the sand and just hope for the world to just take care of itself either necessarily. And so that kind of dichotomy of like, you know, how do you stay on track? What is the track when everything is changing all the time? And, you know, it's interesting some of my sort of more recent recent epiphanies have been I'm not setting any clear goals in the next year or two. I'm actually focusing on direction and I'm still working on my five-year goals, 10-year goals. I'm working towards what I genuinely want and I'm just adapting to the necessities as they come right. a little bit more. Right. And, you know, diversification is like one sort of element also that I've been focusing on is that mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm with you, like having all of your income come only from gallery shows, stressful. Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, because it's basically like it's that unknown, like you don't know, you know, I mean, Arcadia is a great gallery, but like who knows what's going to happen in the next year or two or like if galleries are even functioning or like whatever, you know. And oh, so, man. you know, from that perspective, you know, what else do you do? And I'm still trying to make the best paintings I've ever made. And so I think it kind of comes to like a few things. One if it, you know, good enough isn't good enough. Basically, like if you're making, if you're taking the time away from everything else and painting, try to make the best paintings you can possibly make and things that are so good that even if they don't sell right now, you have like a strong belief that they're worth making. And eventually, you know, somebody will agree with you. And so that's like one thing. Don't flood the market. There's no reason to be more selective with, you know, what you're doing. Try to save a little time for other things and make the best paintings only. And what those other things are kind of depends. Like I've been doing some actual, um, I've been teaching online workshops and so far I think I've done three or four and they've all been donation based. So I've been kind of like, you know what? Everybody's stuck at home. Everyone's kind of, you know, feeling a little lost or a lot of people are. And I don't, some people can't really afford expensive ass workshops right now. And so I just been doing these donation based workshops and they've actually been kind of great. Like a lot of people have been, you know, benefiting and like they're super, you know, actually like writing emails and grateful and things like that. And that actually makes me feel good. Like I feel like I'm helping a little bit somehow, awesome. you know, like an, as an artist, like how do you help? And so it's kind of like, like that I, I'm trying to actually help people that, you know, directly not try to sign people up for donating to some other fundraiser. That's like something that I like. It's like this new thing is almost like telling other people to pay for something for a third party. Whereas I'm kind of like, what can I actually give people directly a little mm-hmm. bit more, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. And I've been sort of, you know, doing that a little bit. And so as I'm saying, started a Patreon channel after COVID and um, have just been kind of diversifying a little bit and like doing other things. Like normally I actually teach physical workshops. And so like I've been kind of scheduling some workshops for next year, which I'm looking forward to. But it's also kind of this kind of ephemeral thing up in the air What's where it's like happen? I was supposed to teach a workshop in may in moscow that obviously got canceled now it's scheduled for next may we'll mm. see 
Mm-hmm. And so like, I'm not changing everything. I'm not like hesitating to make plans because dude, if I need to change the plans, we'll change the plans. You know, mm-hmm. it's almost like, I'm also not like setting these concrete goals of like, I need to do this in a year and a half. Cause I'm like, I don't know what that year and a half is going to look like. And so my goals are a little bit more like grow as an artist, actually make meaningful work that I genuinely like. And, you know, try to pay expenses with, you know, not only money coming in from galleries, to be completely honest, or it's like have some sort of other, you know, side hustle, diversification, teaching, you know, prints, things like that, so that I'm not sacrificing quality of the paintings. Because as soon as you start worrying about, you know, paying rent with your painting, it's hard to like push it to the same level. It's not quite the same thing. Like there needs to be that level of like freedom to actually take chances with your paintings. And, and that's kind of like, where I'm at, where it's basically like, you know what, you know, expenses aren't that, you know, I'll figure it out. It's not that difficult. It's, it's actually like, I want to be happy in two years with what I've accomplished as an artist. And it doesn't need to be, you know, maybe it's less paintings, but as long as I feel like there's some of the best paintings I've done, that's its own sort of accomplishment, to be honest. And that's something that I think is super important. And, and that's kind of like what I'm saying, like, I have a bunch of shows on my docket you know so i'm still working towards them i just feel like sometimes you know you need to diversify a little bit these days so that you're not actually messing with the quality of the paintings um absolutely like i've got three group shows this year i think and then my solos next year at arcadia so like i need to start working that's a year from now and i actually have a piece going to or a few pieces going to uh bain art gallery in australia so it's more your neck of the woods in melbourne Oh, right. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. Well, I'm in another country in, in New Zealand, but uh, it is still down no, I under, know. It's t- technically. It's closer to you, man. It's close I'm enough, really... yeah. Come on. <laughs> it's amazing, though. There's a lot of people that still think New Zealand's a territory in Australia, but I used to live just well, outside I of Melbourne. I know it's not. I was just more saying that, like, it's in your neck of the woods is what I'm saying. Yeah, for sure, dude. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> Sensitive spot, huh? Is there, like, a... Is there like a... <laughs> no, I just want to make sure that people, uh, people listening don't get it twisted. <laughs> You're all good, dude. Oh, yeah, yeah, No. I'm just more kind of, like, you know... Saying it's like it's like saying you're in the neck of the woods if you're in Italy and I'm talking about France. Yeah, or absolutely. No, no, for sure. Belgium, for, for that sure. matter. You know, I, I think I think what you're touching on there, though, you know, again, the diversification. I mean, when times are uncertain, you know, this is time for us to not be spendthrift, for us to focus on on really structuring the day. Maybe, yeah, pulling back that focus from those really huge goals the, the overarching goals but focus more in yeah. the direction one of the things i've done that i just want to share with you and, and the people listening is i've started doing these weekly sheets that i keep out and i'm writing on there and i'm ticking things off and and i've got like actual things down the side of that sheet that are the, more the weekly focus and direction but then i have got two different forms of accountability and that mm-hmm. is uh two people that are now working for me two editors working for me And uh, on top of that, it's the people that are waiting on the content. So I'll make an announcement that something's going to happen 
and the people following me by now know that that very often it doesn't happen quite the way I say it's going to. Yeah. But, but uh, the thing is, is it builds in there this little bit of a pain point where I'm like, okay, I, at least I'm pushing. So I heard this from uh, Dr. John You're Martini. also sick. I get it. I get it, man. I'm insane. <laughs> uh, I, 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 from John Martini said, you know, when you shoot for the stars and you hit a planet, well, at least you left the orbit of the Earth, you know, at least you, you've made it outside. It's funny. There's another version of that is if you shoot for the moon and you miss at least you land in the stars oh there you go there you go yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. um and and i think that this is really what we we should be doing is is pushing right now but pushing in such a way that we're maximizing productivity but we're really also being very conscious about it don't just get busy for busy sake but be very totally. conscious about what you're doing yeah i mean it also depends like honestly like like surprising not even surprisingly like like thankfully you know like yeah. i just had a few sales at arcadia and like you know steve's also a great gallerist and like it's not like people aren't buying art mm. it's just they might stop <laughs> sure it's one of those things and it's basically like that's the feeling to where it's like should i put you know this extra week into this piece that might already be good enough to sell if I don't even know if anybody's even buying. You know what I'm saying? It's oh, that type of thought process where I'm kind of like, you know what, you need to separate that. Because yeah. like you can't you can't do that. And you know, the work needs to grow and the work needs to be the best. And there's other things to do. And that's kind of where I'm at, where mm -hmm. I'm basically kind of like, listen, if I get to a place where I've made like, you know, 15, 20 amazing paintings and nobody's buying them, I'll figure out something else to do. And that's kind of like what I'm saying. Like saying that I'm not going to make the great paintings because mm -hmm. I don't know if people are going to buy them. That's a cop out. Sure. No, for sure. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of like where it's like you're, you're your own worst enemy then. Cause like you, and then you can always second guess yourself. Cause like who knows what's going to happen. And so I'm basically like more kind of in this place where I would advise people to, you know, I don't know be a little bit more open to side hustles or to doing slightly different things to actually like almost examine their process and figure out like, it's also like what I've realized it's hard when everything you do is difficult. Mm. Like sometimes isn't it just nice to like do one thing where it's like, okay, maybe I'll get like a high reward for a little effort. I'm not saying that's easy either to accomplish. I'm just more saying that like the constant super high effort for rewards becomes overwhelming especially in difficult times and so that's kind of where i'm at like you can be a little bit more entrepreneurial with certain things if you and then still leave enough time to actually make great art that might actually be better in sort of today's you know economic situation mm. than doing the whole i'm just you know putting more hours into the studio and you were kind of saying the same thing and just keeping yeah. my head down and just pounding at effort you know, that that's not, you need to be a little bit more sort of strategic, I think, these days. And, and I think there's something to be said for efficiency. And again, this also comes back to, to systems. If you build a level of synergy into that system where things are feeding off each other. Then... Okay, so you're touching on something that I've been totally, you know, being yeah. very sort of excited about. And that's kind of why, like creating content, for instance, mm -hmm. it makes you almost paint better and you're oh, already yeah. creating the things that you would make and now you're creating a whole nother stream not just of revenue but actually of a way to interact with the audience and Absolutely. so it's mm -hmm. not pulling you away from the painting if anything it's making you paint better engage with the audience more even get more feedback and understand how people are engaging and reacting to your work mm -hmm. and so i'm all for it and 
you know, if you have those two or three synergistic types of like, you know, both, you know, things that you do as well as, you know, revenue streams, I think that's like very, very productive and it'll also help you sort of evolve as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Daniel, sure. I, I, I could keep talking to you for hours, mate. I, I really could. And I might, what, what we might do is uh, maybe, if you're willing, uh, consider this part one and maybe do a part two down the track somewhere because I feel that we totally, have a lot man. to talk about. And I, I'm just so excited, man, watching your work and, and you know seeing your approach to painting and now hearing more about your personal story. I, I'm excited to follow you even more. So I hope people listening Thanks, to this, you know, t- take, the, take the chance now to just go and find you on Instagram, uh, check out your website and all of your amazing paintings there. But what's the Thank best you. best way now for people to connect with you? Honestly, I've been very active on social, so Instagram is good and um, email is great. So it's like if you actually really want my sort of like to send me a message, email is the best, um, and you can find it on my Instagram as well. So like Instagram is probably like the single easiest way to um, sort of follow me and keep track of what I'm doing. Perfect. And um, yeah, there's even some links from there for the website and, and Patreon and stuff like that. Wonderful. Well, Daniel, this has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for being on the Thank you, Andrew. Endeavor. It's been great. It really has. Uh, I think I'll, I might I might do more podcasts. This has been fun. Well, I really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Creative Endeavor podcast. And a huge thank you to Daniel Bilmez for joining me. What a treat. Man, I got so much out of this conversation. And I really hope that you did too. Now, you can find more of Daniel Bilmez's fantastic artwork on his website. Simply go to www.danielbilmez.com. He can also be found on Instagram. Simply visit him at Bilmez Art, and that's spelled B-I-L-M-E-S Art. I just know you're going to be as inspired as I am. It's really extraordinary stuff. Now, I don't think I'm deluding myself here, but there's something about these conversations that I just think is vitally important in this day and age. You see, as creative professionals, we really need each other. Am I wrong? I feel that it's so important to hear these stories from other creative professionals, hear what goes into making them tick creatively, hear what they've been through throughout their lives. Why are they the way they are? How are they creating such incredible work? What really drives them? There's a little piece to each and every one of these stories that we can apply to our own creative journey. Now, if you agree with me, if you think that this is important stuff too, do me a favor. Again, Help me share the message. Help me spread the word about the creative endeavor. Help me share these stories with everybody. Simply share this episode on your social media. Let people know where they can find it and join the conversation. Maybe make a post on your Instagram or Facebook. And if you're going to post this to Instagram, use the hashtag the creative endeavor or creative endeavor podcast. I really appreciate that effort. It really helps me spread the word and share this with everybody. I've got more episodes of the Creative Endeavor podcast coming your way. In the next episode, I'm talking to my buddy, Samuel Earp. We're going to dive deep down the rabbit hole and talk about cryptocurrencies and why that should matter to creative professionals in 2021. I just can't wait for that one. Now, if you want to find out more about me, simply visit me at my website, www.andrewtischler.com. That last name is spelled 
T-I-S-C-H-L-E-R. I look forward to seeing you over there. Make sure you're subscribed while you're on my website. I stay in touch with my subscribers regularly. Well, this has been a blast. I've had a great time. I hope you've enjoyed yourself too. I really look forward to being with you again very soon in another episode of The Creative Endeavor. Thank you.